This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor for Federal News Network. Uh, and we're going to take a look, take a look at what's happened this summer with regard to procurement, some of the recent developments. So, Jason, welcome to the show. Roger, you know it's always a pleasure to be here. Well, I know this is—I I won't get a word in edgewise. I, I have that feeling, right, Jason? <laughs> well, you know, this is the one chance I do get to talk a lot. So, thank oh, okay. you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, um, let's—you know—let's start focusing on uh, GSA a little bit. I think, and I know there's—it's been a. Um, sort of eventful summer in a lot of ways. And what I mean by that is there's been a milestone. GSA actually just went into the last phase with regard to schedules consolidation. This phase is where companies are now, who have multiple schedule contracts, are now working with GSA to consolidate down to one. They, you know, GSA's taken all the other steps, um, and now they've got, and now they're working with contractors who have, have those contracts. And I just wanted to touch base real quickly on that, Jason. Just you know, what what have you, what have you seen with regard to the reaction from the community with regard to GSA's approach and how they've gotten this far? You know, I I don't hear a lot of complaints these days. Now you probably do from your members because if they tell if I get a complaint, I probably will write about it. But you know, generally speaking, I, I hear I do hear, get a lot of positive feedback about the steps GSA is taking to consolidate the schedules. I think vendors are excited that this is finally happening. I mean, we've been talking about this for years, it feels like. I hear a lot of positive feedback about other pieces and parts of it, such as, uh, I know we'll get to this maybe, but the Astro solicitation, the story I wrote about being the first use of the 876 authority, the unpriced schedule, if you will, unpriced contract as an evaluation factor is exciting. Uh, they get a lot of credit for also understanding kind of, again, continuing to listen to the customer, continuing to make, uh, try to make improvements. They're not perfect by any regards. I mean, when you have an organization that big, uh, change comes slowly, as we know, is, is the old uh, adage of turning the battleship. But generally speaking, I don't hear a lot of people shaking their fists publicly about GSA. Now, I'll throw it back at you. You're probably hearing something different from your members because that's that's their main area of that's where where they focus, right? Um, well, I, I wouldn't say anybody's shaking their fist. I think people are um, the the feedback you know I've gotten is that people are uh, um, you know pleased with the schedules consolidation and the progress GSA made to get to phase three. Um, most you, if you talk to people, they will tell you that they thought Stephanie Shutt did a great job managing the overall project and messaging and being available to answer questions clearly and provide clear direction to the company so they understood, um, you know, what they needed to, to worry about and address, you know. But but you, you mentioned words like complaints and issues and stuff, and I know you're uh, – you're very interested, and I think uh, Julie Dunn, the FAS commissioner, you know, put out a notice on Interact talking about 
GSA Advantage and, you know, the, um, some of the feedback they've gotten from customers with regard to the data on the site. Um, what do you make of that? This is something I think GSA has done over the years is really, you know, listen to their customers. And it's so important for a for an organization like the Federal Acquisition Service to not just think they're doing the right thing. But you're right, Julie Dunn put a blog post out about the 2020 Customer Satisfaction Survey. GSA received more than 2,500 response, responses from their uh, customers. So these are obviously agency contracting officers and, and the like. And a couple things that, that, that really stood out that GSA says has, you know, that their customers say present significant barriers to purchasing products off GSA Advantage. And, and I'm just going to go through them real quick. Uh, one is missing or confusing product descriptions. They said 7% of responses indicated that customers struggled with incomplete or inaccurate product information, while 15% found the product information confusing. Another issue was out of stock items appearing in search results. 9% of customers stated product availability is an area for improvement. And then a third area is missing or inaccurate product photos. 5% of their customers' uh, responses indicated acquisition challenges related to missing or inaccurate product photos. Now, if you think about it, 7%, 9%, 5%, that's not a whole lot of people complaining. I mean, that means 95% or 93% or 91% in some cases say everything's going fine. But what I think this shows you is that GSA understands that if there are these holes in advantage, if advantage is not you know, getting closer to that 98, 99% satisfaction rate that there are still a lot of people who are unhappy with the way it works or unhappy with pieces and parts of the way it works. And, you know, I think that's a key piece because one of the main things that's important about here is how much money goes through advantage, how much, how many agencies really take advantage of advantage and use it. And as we get into this fourth quarter buying season, that becomes even more important because there's less time and more money to be spent. So uh, I, I think this is a, a good positive feedback that GSA got, and they say they will be making some changes as well. It's not just feedback for feedback's sake. Yeah, I think um, in that regard, I, you know, I think you know, it's good that GSA is focusing on GSA Advantage, right, and trying to address some of the, um, I guess, perceived shortcomings that um, the system has. But it's, but it's not purely and i think that's kind of the insights from that analysis you know just whether or not you have the appropriate information data pictures on the on the site um part of that is you know the user friendliness of the site itself but also part of it is you know the um you know management of the information and what i mean by that is you know one of the things that would help immensely is the ability for companies to immediately delete products when they're no longer available, but they have to go through a process to do that. And that process can take two, three weeks or whatever, you know, so it gets to a point, what's the point of deleting them? You know, if it's so hard to do when it should be something that, um, that um, can be done relatively quickly um, and the same thing with additions and adding new product, it takes too long because it's not, it's not merely uploading, you know, a file or adding new information or deleting information. You know, you have to go through the, through the quote contracting process and then, and GSA has got to think outside the box and figure out how to address that, you know, and create a more flexible dynamic for the addition and subtract in the deletion of products from the contracts and correspondingly from GSA Advantage. You think something that straightforward, that easy, 
hey, we have version three. We're no longer offering version two. We're getting right. rid of version two. It should just be a, a, a checkbox, delete, move on. So uh, let me ask you, Roger, why they set it up that way? Why, why is it like that? Do we know? Is there is there a law? Well, You're a lawyer. But, no. Well, this is you know part of the thing about, you know, and I know at the same time GSA Vantage gets a lot of criticism or, you know, people forget the history of it. And so I'll you know, enlighten you a little. So, <laughs> uh, but you were around. Um, so GSA is really the first electronic catalog that I'm aware of. And, and it began in the 1990s, you know, and folks at GSA were visionary and, and sought to create this electronic ca- catalog um, that customer agencies could use as, as a resource for buying and doing market research. And I can remember working on issues, even back then, there were issues like making sure every contractor was loaded their information on GSA Advantage. That was a huge initiative amongst the contractors, which there were significantly less back then than the you know, 18, 19,000 contracts that GSA you know, is now going, you know, consolidating down to, to, to a lower number. Um, so, and at the same time, the system was built to address all per- types of procurement policy requirements that, you know, to address whether it's ability one, small business issues, other, you know, um, other issues, whether it's, you know, green purchasing at the time and all those layers built in the system, you know, made it more clunkier than it had to be. So that from a systems perspective, I think that's part of it to try to bring it to a 21st century level from a platform perspective. But at the same time, that's not going to do any good if GSA continues to have the same back office processes with regard to the addition and deletion of product and addressing pricing. You can't, you know, if you, if you, don't, if you don't address that, then the greatest system in the world and the greatest platform in the world isn't going to do any good. So, um, so it'd be interesting to see you know, I, I think it's got to be a holistic approach to addressing that, not just systems or just contracting. At the same time, this could be very simple fixes, too. I mean, GSA says in that blog post by Julie Dunn that they realize they want to improve customer experience. So in the short term, they're going to address it through their catalog management initiative. But also, uh, it's not just a policy process and system, but they're going to, hey, something easy is updating information. It should be easy. Updating your know, product descriptions, being consistent, improved photos should be easy to do. That could be a very short-term item, not this long-term big initiative. Right. What also, right. Yeah. What also stands out to me, Roger, is that GSA has been on this path to improve advantage. I went back to 2011. I think we wrote a story where GSA promised to make navigation and search easier, add more product details, add features like brochures, installment instructions, demonstrations. I, you know, I, for me, advantage is a, is a black hole. I can't see into it. I just know it exists. So I don't know if they, that it was ever added, if it was ever updated. Um, in 2018, I know Alan Thomas, the former FAS commissioner, also talked about how customers are driving changes to advantage. And that's where we saw things like order level materials and other changes to those rules. But the pieces and parts to advantage itself, how it functions Again, I can, I've never heard that that has gotten better or changed. I'm sure it has. But again, it's, it's pretty much a black hole to me, which, you know, Roger, could just get me on my, um, on my soapbox about the black holeness of, uh, of, uh, uh, of Vantage and eBuy. But don't, but don't uh, get me started. 
Oh, oh, eBuy. That's okay. Yeah, yes, we don't want you to get started on eBuy. <laughs> I can get my soapbox out. I have it right here if you want me to take okay. it out. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> oh, well, all right. Well, if you insist, the challenge here, of course, is, and we've talked about this many times on your show, is you don't know what's on eBuy, so you can't tell you know only the people who have a GSA schedule can see what's on eBuy, though you really can't say how well it's working until you have a schedule. It costs money to get a schedule. To me, it's this, it's this self-fulfilling prophecy of, of spending money, and you have no idea if you'll get any return on that money. So I know GSA has been trying to make some changes with their eBuy open pilot. I'm interested to know where that pilot's going. I know they're expanding it, but here we are. I think it's been two years. Speaking of uh, Emily Murphy and her tenure as administrator, uh, that's one of those things I'd like to hear more about. Maybe a, maybe a blog post or two from Emily. I know she listens, so maybe... Uh, Maybe this will help her get uh, uh, motivated to write something to let us know what the latest is with the eBuy Open Pilot, because a little more transparency goes a long way. Yeah, um, it's it's a it's an interesting dynamic. I know, um, you know, a pilot that focuses on. I don't understand why why a pilot was necessary. I guess I'm I'm on your I'm on I'm on your soapbox now. <laughs> a little bit that a pilot, I mean, it's either transparent or not. It's not a question whether or not the requirements belong under the schedules or not. It's just letting, you know, the public know, you know, what's available. So I don't know. Well, we'll, see, well, we'll see where it goes. Here's the reason for the pilot that I've been told. And and, and this is both uh, on the record and off the record. So I'll just kind of offer it to you this way on the record. It's well, some agencies were a little hesitant. They want to see how it worked and see, you know, what, what the end result was. The off-the-record comments I've gotten from multiple different people was, uh, sorry, Roger, lawyers were worried. Uh, were, uh, same thing with um, not just lawyers, but the agencies themselves. Uh, well, what happens if, and we don't want to get scrutiny, and if people know what we're putting out there, then they'll know what we're putting out there. So it's was, it was kind of, I think they were looking for a reason, and that reason to me was always, I'll call it a little lame. Uh, it, it was an excuse. So um, th- those are the two main things I've heard is, is, is the, the, the risk aversionness and then the concerns about, well, if we do this, people will know something. And, you know, my answer has always been, we already know you do something. Anyone, you know, there's what's 18,000 right. vendors on the schedules. They all know you do it. So, but um, it, again, uh, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that this eBuy Open Pilot will continue to expand, and and, um, and uh, we'll we'll uh, see some some more transparency. Wow. Well, we yeah we, we so when we come back, Jason, let's talk a little bit about um, Section eight seventy six, the advance notice public rulemaking, the use of the you know the authority to not have to evaluate price at the contract level that's in the astro procurement, uh, what that portends for the future. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor of Federal News Network, and I, I periodically Jason joins the show to just do a rundown on what's transpired over the, the course of this, this this time. It's after Labor Day, so it's what happened over the course of the summer. And um, one of the things that happened in August is um, 
um, keeping on the GSA theme is that GSA um, uh, issued an advance notice of public rulemaking for implementation of 876, I think it's from the 2019 NDAA, that provides for increasing competition at the task order level on multiple award contracts. Um, the authority uh, for the listeners basically allows civilian agencies and GSA in the case of the schedules as well to award contracts for services priced on an hourly rate without having to consider price at the contract level, you know, allowing for focus on requirements, value and competition and pricing at the task order level. Um, and, it, you know, the idea is to reduce barriers to entry to the market and focus on where competition really matters um, at the first agency specific requirements. Now, it's a long explanation. Um, they issued the proposed rule, and then, you know, just just a week or two later, they issued the ASTRO solicitation for unmanned platforms that um, FedSim and AAS are going to utilize them primarily, I think, on behalf of DOD. Um, that solicitation actually used the authority, so price is not being evaluated at the contract level. Um, and they issued a deviation to support uh, the use of the authority for Astra, which is not a scheduled contract. It's a multiple word IDIQ pursuant to FASA. That's uh, I'm exhausted now, Jason, but I had to run through all that just so the listeners got the context. So this is very exciting for me because this is something, again, that I've been on a little bit of a soapbox for the last few years because you see so many of these large multiple word contracts, even the GWACs that get protested because well, you wouldn't evaluate us fairly. Well, why didn't you evaluate us fairly? Well, our prices were too high or our prices were this. And this authority takes price out of the the discussion and it's no longer lowest price technically acceptable or even best value. It's all about your, what can you do? What services can you provide? And we'll worry about price at the task order level. And I think that's something that Emily Murphy talked about during her nomination hearing more than you know almost three years ago now that she really does want to drive competition to the task order level so astro was the first kind of shot across the bow there but this uh, advanced notice of proposals rulemaking which roger i got to ask you why do they bother with advanced notice of proposals rulemaking why not just propose the rule what, what's the rationale behind that um i think <laughs> i think well they're looking for feedback i mean if you look at it's interesting some of the questions that they're asking the public are really questions. I am a little bit surprised because there are questions around, you know, um, authority, you know, interpretation of language that, I mean, is generally considered that's the agency's discretion. You know, the Congress passes a law, the executive branch interprets it. But they're asking, in some senses, for some interpretations from the public. Uh, that's a little unusual. I also think one of the big challenges structurally for the statute um, is that it's it's you know DoD got very got got similar authority a couple NDAs ago you know before this um, to do the uh, to take the approach where they didn't have to consider price at the contract level when awarding you know multiple award IDIQs, um, but their authority does not is not contract type specific. It's much much broader. There are procedural requirements in it. Whereas the civilian authority, you know, does focus on, you know, labor, uh, you know, services priced on an hourly rate, um, which narrows it, um, some would argue, some would argue. I don't, I don't necessarily think it does. Um, 
so there's that disconnect between the two statutory frameworks between DOD and civilian. I, I anticipate that at some point that's got to be, you know, dealt with and harmonized. You know, I think the DOD language would be what you would harmonize to. They're the biggest, you know, you know, you know, buyer of services out there. Um, so that's kind of, you know, interesting dynamic, but I do think it's a great development to see progress in this vein. You know, we, you know, I, you know, I've been saying for years, this is a, you know, reduces the barrier to entry to the market for commercial firms, especially new firms, small businesses who are just, you know, who bring a new product and capability to the federal government, especially in the schedules context where you have the outdated pricing policies, procedures. Um, so this, this should enhance innovation, bring capa greater capabilities from the commercial market to the federal customer in the long run once it's implemented. So very supportive of GSA's efforts here. I guess I'd go back to, though, if you do a proposed rule, you're accepting comments. So now you're yes. doing an advanced notice of proposal. So they're actually going asking for comments twice, which is not a bad thing. I mean, the more input they get, the better. But, but I agree with you that this is a very important step in the right direction because I think the end goal, and I think you blogged about this, is to get this authority down to the schedules so when folks get on the schedule, they're not giving GSA what's the price of one widget they're just saying, here's our capabilities to produce widgets. The price will be based on how many widgets you buy, not, well, one widget's a dollar, but if you buy a thousand widgets, it's 10 cents. So I think that's a huge, huge step. It's more like commercial buying does it. Um, and I think that, that, unfortunately, this is taking too long to get going, but it's good to see that it's going. Right. And, you know, Astro was the other piece of that where it took too long, but I'm glad GSA is trying it out. They're, they're seeing how it works. Do you get a sense that there's excitement in the vendor community? Um, I, there's definitely interest. They, you know, people are watching and going to see how the Astro procurement plays out. You know, it's um, you know it's a subset of the market when you're talking about unmanned platforms and that sort of thing. And we, you know, there are coalition members who are in, very interested in the procurement. But I think I think a lot of folks, as service companies, are going to be watching to see how you know, GSA handles the evaluation, what it, what it portends for potential future use on multiple ward IDIQs, because they could theoretically go, given they've issued a deviation to the FAR to implement it for GSA, they could go use it for other programs like, oh, let's say, for example, like uh, the next STARS procurement, perhaps, Jason, maybe, I don't know, or maybe if there, whatever if there was, is one or whatever they're going to do. So. Or, or whatever they're calling the next uh, Alliant to Small Business Right. Uh, I think they actually teased that at the industry day a few weeks ago, about a month ago now, I guess, where they said, well, we're considering using this authority. And it was actually, I thought that was actually really smart of them to say, to get the small businesses maybe excited or at least looking forward to uh, dealing with some of the challenges that has come up over the years, which is, again, we're going to open up a large multiple award contract to pick the number of 50 people, 100, 100 companies. And, but, you know, company 101 doesn't get on and then they're going to protest. And that causes right. a whole set of series of problems, which, which is why the Alliance to small business fell apart. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, just a final thought on that is that, you know, what, one of the interesting dynamics is that the same time the schedules are a commercial item contract, there's some very non-commercial practices. And I'm, you know, just thinking about cost build approach, um, to, um, you know, negotiating rates when, you know, in the commercial market is, you know, you, you know, you, 
you do a firm fixed price or you you know you you buy your services as you you don't get in and do a cost build and break down you know the service providers individual cost elements in the in a commercial transaction the way you know that um you know you know, some um there's some use or significant use of that in the schedules context and we see and i think it's an artificial exercise it's in a non-competitive approach it's not a market-driven approach and, and i think the closer you get to a market-driven approach i think the better value that the governments are going to get uh, through the process so and and hasn't gsa generally speaking been trying to move in that direction i mean the whole you know tdr piece which i know is was was a was a problem was was an attempt at least to be more commercially focused wasn't you know the, the get rid of the price reduction clause issues wasn't some of that you know while maybe not a perfect example but th- this is a trend we have been seeing from gsa yeah well i would say over the last you know decade or so yeah well the that's a it's a good point jason because the one thing you can say is that the trend and the way things are going the aperture or the is closing on the price reduction clause, whether it's transactional data reporting and, you know, the eliminate and the corresponding elimination of the price reduction clause, or whether it's implementation of, you know, the section 876 authority to drive increased competition of the task order that, you know, if there's not a price negotiated at the contract level, then there's no price to track for price reduction clause purposes, right? So um, so it would be eliminated from that perspective as well. And then you've also got the commercial platform uh, initiative that GSA is working on and they've awarded the contracts, which again, puts additional sort of, I guess, in a certain sense, competitive pressure on the schedules program to streamline things, to address GSA advantage. And part of that will, is GSA's challenge to how to facilitate, you know, greater market dynamics through their contracts as well, which is not done by artificial oversight pricing mechanisms that actually restrict competition like the price reduction clause. And what's here, here's a perfect timing. Just, just looking at it on Twitter, uh, there's a new blog post on, on September 15th that GSA is going to hold a, uh, a listening session about increasing competition at the task order level. This is very exciting, Roger. Yes, there's uh, the ombudsman. Uh, it's um, um, so October twentieth. They'll start it, and then yeah, go in fact, to- there's five listening sessions. Yep, yep. You know, for through through the middle of October to the middle of uh, November. So yes, we're very excited to see GSA do that, and we look. And I know you know our members are looking forward to participating in the conversation. So it's another great step in the right direction. So, hey, Jason, I think we're up on the segment. So, uh, you know, when we come back, I think we'll talk a little about maybe uh, implementation of Section 889, CMMC, CMMC, um, 3610, perhaps, all these numbers that people listen to the show know what they mean. Uh, But my guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor, editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. And you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor at Federal News Network. Um, Jason, um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about GSA, so we, we definitely have to move on. <laughs> um, but uh, I know another thing that came out this summer that's uh, of significant 
interest to the procurement community, I think to everybody, is uh, Section 889, the so-called Huawei ban. Um, and it was Part B. The Part B deals with use of uh, any Huawei equipment or ZT. And there's several other affiliated companies that are identified as well, I believe, um, in the statute. And the implementing regulations were issued as an interim rule with an opportunity to comment and you know, the certification was put in place for contractors with regard to their use of the equipment. And, you know, that I think the significant thing is that, you know, the certification itself talks about any use, um, um, which, um, you know, doesn't go to the actual statutory language, which is narrower in terms of use associated with, you know, core capabilities, you know, that would create the risk. So, um, there's, you know, I know there's been comments submitted saying, hey, the cert needs to, is too broad and needs to focus more on, you know, what the statute required. Um, and in that manner would actually be more effective in meeting the government's goal um, of protecting, you know, our information, which everybody supports and people support, you know, you know, don't, aren't, you know, or support the law. It's just a question of how that cert works, which I think is an interesting observation we'll see you know where that goes from there uh you have any thoughts never thought we'd be arguing over the word use right right <laughs> what does the word use mean are you using it are you not using it when are you using it how are you using it this is a sticky thorn i think you're absolutely right in the sense that uh yes by all means that this is something people can get behind and support uh, i think you're seeing this more broadly, not just with 889, but with supply chain risk management across the government. But just to stick to 889 for a second, the, this idea of everyday use, what does it mean? Does it mean fulfilling a government contract? Does it mean it's used anywhere in the supply chain down through the subcontractor levels? Was it? What about the telecommunications network that your company uses to send an email? Uh, I talked to one government official and they pointed out there are 12 states where the carriers rely on Huawei routers in the rural parts of the states. They, they just can't rip those out. That is how they do their internet or voice communications. So what does that mean? Or what about like another good, good, interesting question came up is, so what if you're a company that has an office in London and you have to use the rural mail who then uses Huawei equipment, does that disqualify you? How do you get that out of your use train, if you will? And I think that's one of the challenges with supply chain risk management. It's not simple, it's not straightforward. It's not like cybersecurity where you say, close your vulnerabilities, get rid of out-of-date software, patch holes, you know, make sure people are trained so they don't click on links. I mean, that's, that's very black and or white. It's not, you know, this, this supply chain is so gray in many ways. And, and that's where they probably get the term gray market from. But that's a whole different discussion. I, I guess what I'm waiting to see is what will happen from these comments because the, the council did put out an interim rule so it's already in effect. So what is this? So what will the comments really do, and will, will they really change much? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it moves forward. I mean, you know, it's it, it's this is more a conversation around implementation, not you know, and how to most effectively get to the our common goal, everybody's common goal of protecting our you know our our nation's secrets um, from near peer adversaries. So. And I think that's the spirit everybody takes it in. And I think that's the way the conversation will continue to proceed moving forward as well. 
Um, now, now, what's interesting, Roger, is there's been several waivers already granted for this. The DOD, for instance, got a broad yes. waiver almost right away, probably the day that the 889 Part B took effect, to deal with things like office supplies and lawn mowing services and food services. Uh, I know there's been other waivers out there as well, but getting a waiver for things like laptops and desktops and cell phones, that, that's going to be a lot harder. And I've even had people write to me and say, hey, you wrote this story that talks about a high risk list or a red list. Can I get a copy of that list? And I'm like, I'm not sure anyone has a copy of that list except for, you know, the people in DOD. So I thought that was interesting how much interest that they, that, that story generated and how much interest people have in, well, what's this mean and what should I do? And, you know, just kind of like that whole, you know, how, how's this the, the long-term effect? Yeah, uh, I, I... Yeah, it's going to be interesting. And, and a related topic, I know you wanted to, you know, talk about CMMC. So I'm going to let you talk about CMMC. Well, thank you for that, because there's plenty there, too. That's, that's okay. another one where I, I'm, I'm surprised by how difficult it is. Again, I realized a couple things, Roger. Number one, this is a new initiative. This is a requirement for... A lot of DOD contractors. I think they had some estimate of like 30,000 or so, or even more DOD contractors. Eventually the flow down will happen. I know that there's a lot of unknowns about it. And the question always comes back to with CMMC is, again, very similar to 889, supportive, understanding the reasons. It's hard to argue against getting better supply chain risk management. A lot of these companies should have already been doing this under NIST 800-171. But why did DOD decide that they had to have a brand new certification versus building on 171 with ISO, one of the ISO standards or another existing one, and then building on that once the sector got more mature? That was never very clear. And then, unfortunately, this just in the recent weeks, we've seen a lot of disharmony with the CMMC advisory board. Uh, they are losing people. At least two people dropped off the board. They've added new people. Uh, and then there's potentially other provisions in the NDAA that's talking about other reports and other leg and other things required of CMMC and the advisory board. They're still, if you will, behind in some regards. They announced new training. They announced new people to provide curriculum. So they're making some progress, but it's just slower than expected. And, and people, there's a lot of angst about it because very similar to FedRAMP, as you remember that for cloud security, first mover status gets a big, big, they're, they're, they, get, they get a lot of um, first mover status under CMMC, just like FedRAMP, they get an advantage and no one wants- A competitive not, advantage. Yeah, nobody right. wants not to have that advantage. Right. Well, it is, um, it is going to be interesting over the next, you know, year or so to see how it all plays out, you know, and and then- um, you know, to the extent this is, is truly becomes embedded in the DNA of the government and, and its government contractors, it's, it's, it's the push pull of it and um, just where, you know, and how long it actually takes to implement. I mean, these things do take, given the scale and the scope of what, um, what is uh, to be accomplished here, um, it is going to take a lot of time and there'll be, you know, valleys in it there'll be you know you know things will be moving smoothly at one point it's just it's gonna it's a process just like anything right and 
And yet you don't know what you don't know until you figure out how, how that process should be implemented or not and develop best practices that can be shared across the community. So be interesting to, to watch it. What, what are you hearing from your members as well about CMMC? I mean, are, are they, again, on pins and needles going, okay, okay, what's this mean? What's this mean? What's this mean? Or have things settled down a little bit or are they less on edge? I mean, I think right now um, people are um, trying to understand, are trying to understand or, well, there's so many different things going on right now between the pandemic and, you know, just in 3610 and what does that mean? And, um, you know, schedules consolidation for the service companies um, that there's so many different things that I think CMMC is just a little bit further down the, down the pike, right. In terms of when DOD and how, how implementation is going to be laid out. The questions are just, what does it mean on the civilian side for the future is one thing I hear. Um, I think people are, you know, for a while, there's a lot, has been lots of, tra- uh, you know, um, traffic and noise about how, oh, I can do training for you on, you know, what you need to have and your, you know, to get your certification. And then, and I think where there's most interest is the whole concept of third parties, you know, sort of certifiers and how is that going to work and who, um, you know, who, who is put in that position and how, how are they vetted and, you know, how is it all going to work from that perspective? I think those are, those are the things I hear right now. So um, and you know what? We're already up on the break. So maybe when we come back, we can talk a little bit about 3610 and, you know, where that is. A GAO report was it just uh, issued uh, around the implementation of that that deals with COVID-19 service contractors. Um, and then perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about COVID-19 and the government's response and, and where things are. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's executive editor of Federal News Network. And I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of Federal News Network. And um, hey, Jason, uh, this segment, I think we'll talk a little bit about, um, you know, just some observations around um, the government's response to COVID-19 and maybe even just like a business process response, uh, you know, response, what we've seen with the, you know, the virtual world we live in. But first I want to mention, um, cause I know you have some thoughts or if you, you know, like some observations with regard to 3610, um, and you know, the, the provision, I think of the cares act that dealt with, um, the ability to pay contractors to keep folks in place um, and not lose, you know, capability uh, during the pandemic while, you know, the, the, those, those folks weren't necessarily working on the, those particular, that government project or whatever. So, I mean, that's a poor layman's term for describing the authority, but uh, what are you, what are your thoughts? What do you see? First of all, there's obviously a lot of concern about that the authority under 3610 is going to expire soon. I know that there was a letter from a group of senators in early August asking for an extension um, all the way through December 31st, 2021. But right now it expires September 30th, which is uh, just a couple of weeks away. So I think there's a growing concern about, you know, a lot of agencies haven't really used it yet. And the fact is that because they haven't used it yet, 
that means that the authorities have not benefited the, the people they're supposed to benefit, which is the, the industry uh, companies. So I think that's why the extension is both important and probably likely, though, you know, with Congress, as you know, Roger, you never know until you know. But um, what's interesting is, is the I was surprised by that Government Accountability Office report that found really only the Defense Department has been using the 3610 authority. NASA a little bit, energy a little bit, but GSA, HHS, VA, a lot of these other agencies that GAO looked at have not used it at all. I think the GAO found of the money paid out through 3610 authority, about 22 million in total since I think from whatever it was passed in March or like April to mid-July, uh, 18 million of that 22 million came from DOD and the rest came from NASA and energy, but obviously it's not a lot there. Um, but, and we do know that DOD has been banging the drum a lot saying our bills are going to come due. That right. We will have a billion dollars worth of 3610 payments to eventually make. So we want to make sure that authority is there. So uh, it, it's a sticky wicket in many regards because it's an important authority to keep industry ready because if, if they lose people and then the contract, you know, all of a sudden this pandemic is quote unquote solved or we, people start going back to the office in bigger bunches, they need to be able to perform. But if they can't perform because they've lost people be due to unable to pay them or companies have gone out of business. So there's a lot of pieces and parts moving here. And I think, you know, the easiest thing to do is extend the authority, which again, I, I think they will, but until it's done, it's not done. Yeah, you're right about that. Um, and I, I'm not surprised it's DOD that those number figures, I mean, DOD is, you know, you know, the elephant in the room when it comes to procurement, first of all. And secondly, I think there's a more, um, I don't know, openness isn't the right word, but I think, you know, there's a, um, a comfort and, and a, you know, maybe a bit more sophistication for the contracting folks who are dealing with companies who would be, you know, um, in a position to, you know, need to take the advantage of the 3610 uh, capability and authority. So, um, and to your point, you know, we're just in the beginning stages of this thing and the bills are going to come due over time. So we'll, we'll be interested in see what the final sort of um, spread between civilian and DOD is and what the total number is. But um, to your point, the idea of keeping capability in place to be able to perform, you know, on vital government contracts um, over time, um, it helps, you know, the government, it helps the taxpayer in the long run. It's an investment. Um, it helps companies and also actually helps the individuals, obviously, who are working for those companies who might otherwise, you know, lose, uh, lose their job. So, um, so, so that's 3610. I know you, you know, you, you mentioned this to me and you wanted to talk a little bit about just the changing dynamic in the market and what you're, what, what the feedback you're getting and from folks with regard to the virtual world we live in now. One of the things that we've seen, and this is what I think is, I always love to use this term, and I think people are probably tired of it a little bit, is that there's, if there's a silver lining to the pandemic, and, and this has just been an awful tragedy with, with you know, hundreds of, of thousands of people dying and, and even more millions getting sick because of the coronavirus, but it's the way the government has really adjusted. And this includes industry too. We hear a lot more discussion around from DOD, from the intelligence community, we thought everything we had to do was classified. We're finding that, hey, a lot of this work can be done in an unclassified setting, and that means more people can continue to work, more contractors can continue to work on jobs. 
we're also realizing that not you don't have to be in the office to do these jobs and there are ways to ensure security while also doing your work outside of, of an office. And I think that applies to procurement too in a big way. We're seeing agencies do more industry days, obviously through Zoom or through other uh, video teleconferencing systems, Teams and, and the like, WebEx. We're also seeing uh, d- different approaches to procurement, which I think is also healthy. Uh, this, you know, the, the Section 876 stuff we talked about earlier, while not directly related to the pandemic, it's a good sign that innovation is, is not being you know, tamped down during the pandemic. It's actually being promoted because there's an urgency to get work done. So uh, one of the most interesting things we've heard in the last, you know, four or five months is actually the Air Force held an industry day and and a conference. And they said, you know what, going forward, we really like this approach. We may just do this for everything and stop this in-person events because they can reach a broader audience, more people, uh, you know, from a reporter's perspective, and Roger, you could probably say it from your perspective, it's, there's there's a, a less value for someone like me to not be able to show up and see people and ask questions. But without a doubt, the, the move that they made over the last three, four, five months has shown that the federal procurement is not the stodgy old, can't move quickly, they, they can move, they can adapt, and they can be flexible, which is, I think, the the best part of, one of the best parts of this this Yeah, I I mean, I share, I think there's been efficiencies identified that, um, and capabilities expanded that would otherwise be, you know, years down the road, obviously. Um, You know, so I agree with a lot of what you said, I do, but I do firmly believe that, you know, there's nothing that replaces that, you know, in-person conversation with folks. to get a fuller understanding. I don't think we haven't solved the issue of like really understanding or getting a sense um, that human interaction about what's really on someone's mind, frankly. Um, and I think that screen still sort of, you know, is a barrier to that. Um, um, so, so I think that's, you know, when we get back to, you know, hopefully normal, um, obviously there's going to be more virtual, but I think there's, it will uh, evolve into a combination. Right. Um, and I don't know what, you know, the balance will be different than it was before, but, um, you know, the collabor in-person collaboration I found over my career, and maybe I'm just an old guy, is, you know, some, is invaluable in learning lessons from people and that sort of thing. And I think also for, especially for young people who are just starting out in their careers, you got to be in the office, you know, you know, and, and, and learning and observing, um, and, you know, from folks who you're working with and doing it virtually on an island, you know, it's, it's not a great way to start. I feel bad for folks like that too. So we got about a minute left or so. And I wanted to just give you, if you could provide, you know, any thoughts or, or what you're hearing with regard to a CR versus not, um, you know, I think we think there's going to be a CR, but um, what, what are you hearing, Jason? Well, like anything else, until it's done, it's not done. But uh, I, I think that it does not make sense for the Congress to shut down the government. Uh, I think that their goal is probably to push the CR until after the election. So sometime in late November, maybe even after Thanksgiving, early December is what we're hearing now. And, you know, maybe even longer. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if if there's a change in administration if they punt the CR again into maybe even February. And, and then that will obviously impact the federal budget process as well. The, the new administration would have to change up the budget. 
So there's there's a lot to watch for between let's say you know October one or September thirtieth really, and yeah. uh, you know probably January one and, and going forward. But I feel pretty good that we'll have a CR. I don't expect a government shutdown. Just like uh, there's a lot of concern about the U.S. citizenship and immigration service people being furloughed. In the end, they seem to have figured it out. It's not a done deal yet, but they every time they get close, they seem to figure things out. I think the same thing will happen with the CR. But, Roger, I think we're going to be sweating a little bit on uh, September 29th and 30th, but I think they'll get it done. All right. Well, thanks, Jason, and thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. So, You know it's always a pleasure. We love these conversations. Oh, absolutely. So I want to thank my guest today, Jason Miller. He's executive editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.